Welcome to the History of Networking, where we drag all of skeletons out of the wiring closet and ponder the ghost of protocols past. Today we are talking to Dave Piscatello about OSI and IP, so grab a pile of cookies, settle in, and listen as we meld with the finest minds in networking. So good afternoon, Dave. Let's talk about... OSI, Open Systems Interconnect, and TCPIP. Now, we all use TCPIP today, but back in the day when I first started in networking, we were still using IPX and VIP and CLNS. <laughs> and Apple Talk was a big thing. <laughs> so, how did we get from there to here? So, so you uh, you mentioned only a handful of the probably two dozen um, proprietary uh, LAN and and uh, network architectures that were uh, that were emerging at the time. Um, you know, you had Banyan Vines, you had Thoreau's network architecture, you had Sperry architecture, you had uh, just about every vendor had their own architecture. DEC, um, Univac. Um, yeah, so uh, it was. It was a uh, it was a time when you know, when people were tired of trying to uh, flog their way through the multi-protocol morass, uh, and you, know, you have to keep in mind that let, let's let's calibrate and think about what what the the, the world looked like. Um, we're talking about 1982, 83, 84, at the very beginnings of OSI, right. so. You know, uh, modems were 300 to 1,200 bits per second, and they were mostly used to connect the bulletin boards. Uh, most organizations didn't have an internet; they had their own architecture, and they um, connected their uh, yeah, their uh, facilities and their um, their data centers using fractional T1s and multiplexing, and uh, you know, then and later the yeah, relay. The campus was yeah, the campus was a little bit of fiber, you know, mostly copper. Yeah, and and you know a lot of people weren't running 10 megabit per second Ethernet. Yeah, they were running you know, running one megabit per second, you know, or three megabit per second oddball, you know, local area network technologies. Yeah, to token ring, yep. um, token bus. I've actually seen a couple of those. And what was that other one that always blew up? Tommy Conrad. Um, Arcanet. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. We all. Laugh, right. Well, you know, and um, you know, I worked at Burroughs Corporation at the time. We had we had a proprietary six megabit per second um, local area network um, with very large packets um, you know, or frames because we were trying to connect and move data between mainframes. So, um, multi-protocol routers like like the Cisco uh, were also just emerging and and most most of the vendors were trying to defend their you know defend their uh, networking strategy staying you know single vendor and most of the uh the rest of the world was trying to break that you know people didn't want to be locked into um an apple talk or they couldn't possibly be locked into an apple talk because they had diverse um operating system needs and so you had this real mess and um, at the time, the, the there was no internet per se. There was the ARPANET project. You know, there was a you know a backbone that was being operated 
privately by Merit uh, up in the University of Michigan. Um, and it was connecting universities. And there were certainly organizations that were connected to it and you know, commercial companies that were connected to it. And they were using TCP IP. But you know, the backbone was 56 kilobits per second. You know, we're, we're talking about you know, an environment that almost everyone can't conceive of. Um, and so we, we started with an idea in the, in the OSI community um, that was, you know, that wasn't heretical. It, it was, it was you know, practical. It was, you know, how do we come up with a single um, architecture that, uh, that would have, um, you know, have the support of, you know, not only commercial and private companies, but uh, also governments uh, worldwide because the, the predominant um, wide area networking um, afforded to Europeans, for example, was, was provided through um, uh, government run or national public telephone and telegraphy um, companies, PTTs, carriers. Uh, this is you know, pre, predating ISPs as we know them. Uh, and they were running, um, well, in France, for example, they were running the Minitel network, which is, you know, this, you know, hideous looking thing that was running on top of X25 packet switching. Um, and so they were very, what we used to call connection oriented. And um, the, the original model for OSI was really one where you had connections from the application layer all the way down to the data link layer. And, uh, yeah, and so imagine the world that was essentially yeah, essentially very TCP oriented in its thinking. You know, you have, you know, three-way handshake, you connect things, you connect connections, um, and uh, you connect carrier networks at, you know, exchange points um, that were uh, as much governed by um, regulations, uh, you know, international telecommunications regulations as they were technology. Uh, the idea that somebody would come in, come in with you know, IP at the time um, was, was completely fought, uh, uh, opposed by most of the Europeans um, and most of the rest of the rest of the world. Uh, because, and, and there was a lot of Department of Defense baggage that was, you know, that was conveyed in the use of up to IP. There was a lot of concern that the U.S. government would, um, you know, would, control the protocols and influence other governments because they control the protocols. Um, and uh, well, there were also export controls, right? Cause Kilnam told yeah, us when he came right. on and talked about South Korea, that they had to rewrite the entire router stack for the PDP 11 because the U S government wouldn't allow them to export that code. Right. Because the code had certain encryption modules, you know, and instead of actually, you know, like compartmentalizing what you could, export and not the way they tried to do later with, with DES and DES3, you know, um, they, they at that time said, no, no, you just can't export it. Um, and you know, there were lots of companies that, that, that had products that were, you know, had export challenges for exactly that reason. So, so going in with something that was IP um, was a DOD protocol stack. Um, a was politically, yeah, politically a nightmare. It was just not going to happen. Um, and, uh, and B, there was a, a, a sense from the, from the European community um, that the internet architecture was incomplete. It was very well formulated up until the, uh, up until the, the, um, the API uh, to TCP and UDP, the transport layer. And above that, there was ASCII, and people threw together ASCII, and, they, you know, and the computers talked ASCII, and they just came up with you know, conversations that were not 
you know, not in the minds of the Europeans, very academic and structured, and there weren't syntax languages and, and the like. So you had, you know, you had a, a, a very big um, interest in creating much more formal language definitions for um, conducting sessions uh, in the context that IBM's um, systems network architecture um, had conducted sessions. Um, so LU 6.2, if anybody ever remembers that, um, was kind of a paradigm for some of the work in sessions. Um, you know, they would, uh, people would look at things like FTP back in the 1980s and say, you know, there's no synchronization points. There's no way to, you know, to actually do much semantically with, you know, with the data stream um, without relying heavily on what was going on underneath. Uh, and so, so the OSI people wanted a session layer. They also wanted to be able to make a discrimination between uh, the bits that went across the wire, which was called the trans transfer syntax, and the bits that were presented to a you know, to an application or an end user, and they call that presentation syntax. And that's where you came up with these languages like uh, abstract syntax notation one, which is used in in some of the TCP um, yeah, uh, and IETF standards like SNMP. Um, and then on top of that, there would have applications. Now, when when you think about the kind of applications that people were trying to run in 1980 in the early 1980s, you know, you're really talking about mail and file transfer. Um, and that's it. I mean, we're, you know, we're almost 10 years before web, you know, um, the notion of being able to do streaming video, at, you know, at 300 to 1200 bits per second was a, you know, was a no brainer. So there was, there was just not a lot that you could, you could imagine yet the, the, the there was a huge amount of work for creating a mail infrastructure, you know, with mail transfer agents, you know, um, and, and an architecture that was a little bit more formal and, and much more heavy-handed, I think, than what S SMTP was. Well, and directory services were and a big directory services. Wanted to be able to find what you were looking for. And there was this thing out of the U.S. government called gossip around then as well, right? Which was trying to push. Yeah. I don't remember exactly what role that played, but it was trying so, to push something. So in gossip, was a, gossip was a procurement profile so to speak. Yeah, it was, if you were going to sell gear to the U.S. government, uh, you would have to um, satisfy the gossip criteria. So uh, because, of, because of the you know, largely the United States and in part um, Japan and the United Kingdom, look, having looked at TCPIP um, and saying, you know, this whole datagram thing is, you know, is really, really great because you can connect our lands with, you know, over WANs and you can, you know, and you can have a common, um, you know, uh, sublayer or abstraction of internetworking on top of diverse underlying technologies and underlying networks. And um, you can do, rec you know, recursion and you can do all sorts of amazing stuff that we do today, you know, with, with tunneling and, you know, VPNs and the like. Um, and we didn't want to give that up. So really, you were talking about CLNS. I was the editor for CLNS. I actually wrote that along with, uh, you know, with uh, Lyman Chapin, uh, who was then at uh, Data General, and David Aran, who was then at Digital Equipment. And, uh, oh, God, my, my, the other names are, are, are blinding. Ross Callan, who was at BBN. Um, and so, you know, we put together, basically what we did was we sat there and we looked at the IP spec and we said, well, since the OSI community will never accept any of the bits the way that DOD wanted them, we're just going to have the same functionality uh, and just use different bits. And we made some changes along the way. We said, uh, instead of just having a fixed 32-bit um, uh, address field, 
you know, eventually that's going to run out, and it certainly can't accommodate the kind of addressing that Europeans might want to have, uh, because they were still looking at lumbering schemes for, you know, um, for telephony. So we made a variable length, um, you know, field for addressings, and there was a length in indicator byte in that which said, you know, your addresses could be 255 bytes, which is a lot of addressing, you know, certainly even more than what's in uh, IP version 6. So, um, so the whole idea of having a connectionless network service was sort of pushed into the, uh, the open system interconnection architecture. Uh, and um, so was the concept of, of UDP um, and concept of applications having, yeah, having a, you know, a, what, what the Europeans derogatorily said was send and pray, um, you know, kind of architecture. Uh, and that created the problem because um, the people in France and the people in Germany still believed that what they needed was you know, this very rigid connection-oriented framework that matched borders and was able, you know, you know, aligned really well with, you know, with uh, national uh, PTT uh, intentions. Um, and here we were saying, yeah, but you're all going to be below what we're running. Yeah, so don't we, we don't really care. You can. You're, go ahead, be happy, stick your Minitel terminals and whatever else you're going to put on, you know, directly on X25 uh, or X21. And we're going to just, when we want to traverse your country, we're just going to slap an internet layer on top of it. And there were actually people who were, who were, who were trying to get it mandated that you couldn't do that through their country. So it was, it was, it was not a wild west, but it was a, a very, very strange political environment. Yeah, that reminds me of the quality of protection thing that people tried to do for a long time with BGP. And I think they're still trying to do it. Oh, we want our stuff not to transit this country or that country. Yeah, I, yes. how, I don't even know. It's a packet switch network. I mean, how do you, just don't even get that. I don't even. Well, you, you can do that in a telephone network. Right. But, yeah. but that's, a, that's telephone based thinking. That's not. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, a lot of this. A lot of this was, in fact, telephone-based thinking. We would go in there, um, and uh, I honestly, and, and I, I wrote this in, in my book. You know, there, we were at a meeting where, um, you know, where this gentleman who was a uh, was uh, uh, he was actually a U.S. advocate of, of you know of um, telephony. He worked you know with AT and T uh, and and uh, yeah and other companies at the time that were very interested in. Uh, in having a telephone network you know, dominate in this field. And he got really frustrated when we were talking about, you know, successes and scaling and growth of, you know, of the internet. And he was saying, the internet is an academic toy. It will never amount to anything. And I actually put that quote in my book. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, and every go. time I, see, I, I run into him, like once every 10 years, every time I see him, he looks up and he goes, yeah, I know. It's not an academic toy. <laughs> It's still all it's still all academic. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah. So, you know, the, the the thing that was really challenging was was trying to get people um, who were very uh, mired in the notion that you had this data terminal um, equipment and data circuit terminating equipment and a DMARC. And that's the way the world was going to be. And so the, the most of the modeling of how you're going to do communications made the note or, or made it sound like you're going to have a dumb piece of equipment on the outside and all the intelligence in the network. And, you know, 
internet working is just the opposite, right? Yeah, you know, and and you know, look at today. I mean, your phone, you know, you know, my Android phone is orders of magnitude more powerful than the mainframes that I used to work on. Yeah, you know, and so not everybody knows that. You know, that sort of mantra. Um, and you know, where is all the where is all the processing going? You know, when you're doing streaming, the network is not doing the buffering for you. you know, the network is not doing you know doing um, any sort of smoothing. It's not you know it's, it's right. not accommodating for loss. Um, imagine trying to build a network of connections, um, all of which we're trying to support a, you know, a, a guaranteed quality of service for seven billion people. And so, you know, so, so, and and you could never do that. Uh, right. So, yeah. yeah. So while a lot of people really despise, you know, still, you know, all the folks that worked on OSI and said you guys were just maniacs, you had no no idea what you're doing. If if it weren't for for what was going on in OSI and raising awareness about internet networking, a lot of countries that that finally came to the conclusion that you know IP was better um, may not have come to that conclusion, and we might have you might have had a you know had a, a much more fractured. Uh, and slower evolution uh, and adoption than we had, you know, because because what what I feel OSI did, uh, and I'm yeah I'm I'm admittedly you know uh, you know, you know, saying a little bit of revisionist history to make myself comfortable here, is we tried to emphasize the notion of internet networking. We tried to emphasize the notion that all the all the principles of of uh, of the architecture that TCP/IP. Yeah, actually represented. Yeah, you had smart end systems. You had, you know, lots of power in the end systems. You could grow your network by increasing increasing customer premises equipment, so to speak. Um, and we also were very keen to to try to create an environment where you could have um, bursty traffic. You know, just like you had on the Ethernet. So, you know, um, at the time, and the kinds of app applications that were people were just experimenting with. Um, you know, back then, um, like distributed operating systems on you know, at UCLA, the Locus L O C O S, um, you know, architecture and, and other architectures, were doing what we do what we call clouds today, but they were doing right. it 10 megabits per se second on on 8-bit processors. Right? right. Those guys were smart. Those guys were way smarter than it, yeah, than what we do today. So so a couple of interesting things are. First of all, in OSI, the model, the concept is each device has an identifier, and then no matter what interface it uses, it uses that identifier. Or in ISIS, not CLNS, sorry, I should use the right in 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 CLNS. And so essentially, everything is host routed. That's kind of the basic concept. Whereas in IP, the idea is you route to a subnet or a wire. Now, is that yeah, 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 an interface. Now, does that come out of Ethernet, or is that something that was intentional on the part of um, CLNS versus the the part of IP? Like, is that some? I, I would say that um, that came out of Radio Perlman. Yeah, um, yeah. Most of the real, most of the real work in yeah, in the uh, uh, ISIS. Um, yeah, interior gateway routing, whatever you wanted to call it at the time, uh, was you know was it derived from the DECnet architecture you know, and the DECnet um, you know, the, the, the DECnet routing protocol. Uh, you know, 
I, at the time, I was, at, you know, I, I seemed to be on the short end of, of almost all these competing technologies. I, uh, I was, we, we were promoting distance vectors. So the people in the room that were like Cisco people liked it because it was like EIGRP. Which is, by the way, still a great protocol. Just nobody pays attention to me when I say it. <laughs> well, it's a great protocol, but it does, yeah. And well, we admitted that it had limitations. You know, the counties, right. you know, there are lots of other problems with it. And ISIS, you know, was was a, a much more intelligent way to do you know, to, to to do routing, and you know, I you know, um, I it was hard for me to concede that because I was being paid not to concede that, but you know, I kept looking at it and saying, you know, honest to God, you know, this is Roseanne Barr and Christy Brinkley, you know, like, <laughs> so uh, so so it was a. I would I would want to fairly at least in my mind to, to, to fairly give you know, uh, give credit to to Radia and you know and the folks that were that she was working with um, at digital um, you know who really came up with a very very good you know, good uh, solution to you know to dynamic routing and adaptive routing uh, and um, yeah and then, and then we had to do all the fast reroute stuff to get around those problems. And the microloop stuff, but yeah. you know, back in the day, then those weren't issues for the most part, right? Those were like convergence time was too slow, and nobody really even noticed the microloops were there and stuff like that. Nobody ever talked about it, you know. You you couldn't you couldn't have enough routes to for, for it to be that much of a problem because you didn't have the memory for them. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> So, so what made people decide that IP was better? I mean, I remember the arguments when I was in the Air Force and we had huge arguments about it. And I actually wrote a paper once on VIP versus IP. I mean, that's incredible. That's, that's, that's craziness. But just talking about the differences in the amount of chatter on the wire and doing a sniffer trace and figuring out that v, VIP was, was more efficient per se because, it, because, it, because of the way it worked. Um, and the way routing was built in, whereas with IP, you had to have a separate routing protocol and VIP had this built-in stuff and the Vine servers did all the, did all the routing for you and you didn't need like the Cabletron right. boxes. And right. so I'm, you know, what, what, what led to those decisions that IP was that much better? So there's a, there's a lot of different, um, a lot of different ways that you can look at this. You know, one of the simplest was um, internet standards were free. You could you could download them. You could get them very quickly. You could right. you know, even back then there were there were approximately you know what I would approximate to open source uh, for you know for TCP/IP. Uh, there was no such thing in OSI. Only the larger commercial companies were building it because you had to go buy these standards for thousands of dollars from ITU or from what well, what's now ITU, but from uh, the ISO, the International Standards Organization. Uh, so if you wanted the if you wanted a copy of of uh, CLNS or CLN you know, CLNP, you had to go pay a couple hundred dollars or uh, whatever it was in francs at the time, um, and yeah, and startup companies and, and academia you know weren't going to go spend that you know they, you know, they were going to they were going to use what they had to do you know, the, uh, handy, uh, and a lot of the startups that that, that really exploded um, you know. Just started being, you know, started exploding largely because they had affordable, um, functional uh, internet networking that wasn't bond, wasn't bound to a particular vendor. So they, you know, this is uh, literally what de facto is intended to be, 
right? The, it, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily that it was better, although I think it is. Um, it wasn't necessary necessarily the case that it was faster, um, although it turned out it would be. Um, but it was available, and so if you were sitting there and you you know, you, uh, you had to figure out how you were going to connect, you know, seven you know, seven different vendors in a heterogeneous environment. You, know, you, you, know, you had these choices. Okay, well, I'm getting three, three boxes from DEC, two boxes from IBM, one box from Burroughs. You know, these five, five little things over here are from some company called Apple. I don't know what the hell to do with them. You know, how am I going to connect all this? Well, I can go and I can try to get everyone to be on DECnet. That's not going to happen. And try to get everybody to be on um, SNA. You know, that probably could happen. And in fact, a lot of people did that. Um, uh, but in the end, only large companies or banks or people who had enough money to throw away you know, you know, to, at the solution could afford to do that. And so this is my interpretation of what happened is that, uh, that the, the availability product, the availability of the standards um, and the price points were such that you know, they literally chased, you know, chased most of the OSI implementations you know, out, out the door. Yeah. yeah, and there were routers at that time that were multi-protocol and and would connect yeah. things together, but they really didn't do the. It was it's like it was like the early days of NAT, right? It was like it kind of worked, but you had to reach into the packet and do stuff to it, and the code was very slow, and the code was oh, yeah. buggy. You know, like you'd buy your Cabletron box and you'd stuff it over there with Gator Blade or whatever that blade was that would do VIP to IP or IPX to, v, to IP, yeah. and it was like. Oh my, nothing ever worked right. It was just a disaster. Just easier just to put it on IP and be done with it. It was yeah. like, you know. I was going to say that the one, one possibility, one opportunity for, I, uh, for um, OSI to shine was uh, the, uh, selecting IP next generation. Uh, well, so the, uh, in 1992 or three, we already knew that IP, uh, you know, IP version four addresses were going to exhaust we thought by 1999, 2000, and we were trying to come up with, this is in the IDTF, we were trying to come up with a, uh, a successor protocol. And so they called it IPNG, the next generation. Right. And um, to make a very, very long story short, uh, the, there were many proponents of using CLNS and CLNP because the NSF backbone at the time was already running dual ISIS. Uh, and it could, sw it could switch both IP and um, and CLMP. And so, yeah. yeah, so you're talking about something that 25 years ago was actually running, you know, running with larger addresses. Uh, and um, probably at the same consumption percentage as we have for IPv6 now. Yeah. Uh, and so, so, you know, I won't go into the, the, the horrible details of, of how the decision uh, you know, was made. Uh, you probably want to get John Curran to, to come and, and give a talk about that. Um, but uh, it was made, and you know all this gear that was actually running, you know, running a, a, a dual uh, IP, um, you know, backbone, uh, just sort of went away, and so, you know, and the backbone you know, stopped. You know, st I think it stopped switching uh, CLMP. Um, but we lost 25 years. You know, yeah, I, I have to say that you know that was that was one case where I think the IETF that always claimed that working code was more important. You know, um, then consensus uh, really made a mistake. You know, and of course they'll say, "Well, you're biased because you know your your solution wasn't chosen." But you know, hindsight's pretty twenty twenty here. You know, we still don't have you know you know a version six, and uh, 
and we had one back then. So yeah, yeah, I think Radius says this from time to time. We should have just done ISIS instead of V six and been done with it, and it would have been a lot faster. Yeah. But now, when was the OSI OSPF versus ISIS battle? Was that the same time frame? Oh wow! Um, all the reason I ask is because just it's, before that, because because the NSF. Um, this was just around the time when NSF was looking to push the DS3 in the backbone, and they were making some, you know, making a lot of other design, um, you know, design decisions. And Peter Ford uh, would probably be the right person to, to to get that history and chronology right. The reason I asked that about OSPF versus ISIS um, is because at that point there was such an argument that there may have been a bit of bias in the IETF against OSI protocols, um, you know, just oh, because of the, bias. yeah, just because of the argument between those things, um, not invented here type of thing yes. that was going well, on. It, so it was partly not invented here and partly, I think, yeah, in fairness, yeah, and I'm probably, I'm being a lot more generous and fair than in, uh, now than when I was on the IESG back in, you know, at the time when this is all happening. Um, the not invented here uh, had two characteristics. One was it's not our bits, and the second was not only is it not our bits, but we can't we can't guarantee uh, that if we go into you know, um, if we if we agree to use these uh, these standards that the uh, the ISO and CCITT, uh, which is now ITU, um, managed that they would. Give it to let us let us make changes. They would give it to them for, give it to us for free, and so there was there were a lot of I think policy uh, issues as well as the you know it's not our bits that were going on there. Uh, right. So so that seems like an ISO versus or an, uh, yeah an ISO versus IETF thing right there right. The yeah, ISO is this is is a big cumbersome was seen as a big cumbersome organization that was concerned with a like the threading on but bolts and nuts and you know all sorts of things that were going on and it was built around having paid membership with single vote and the itf was all open so therefore right. i think the academics particularly gravitated towards the itf but um, it was also it's also government versus private sector Oh, that's interesting. Now, yeah, that's so, you know, the only members. The only members in 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 the ITU are you know are, are nation, nations. They are nation carriers. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I think it was a very fair, you know, very fair concern. And while the ISO uh, had said, no, no, you can have the standard, um, there was a lot of there was just. Years of mistrust. Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the people that were developing the standards had deployed networks in Europe and had, you know, you know had you know, run-ins with their own local carriers, and so there were there's a lot of grudging too. Uh, but that's part of policy, right? That's, that's, yeah, right. That's yeah, what makes policy so ugly and ha and you know and interesting at the same time. Yeah. So I know one of the arguments between OSPF and IS to IS was the TLVs versus fixed link fields and mm -hmm. the efficiency on the wire. Yeah. So, do you think that played a role in CLNS versus IPv6 as well? Oh, yeah. or is, okay. Yes, it did. And in fact, the, the, and and part of it was, and this is where um, people were being very short-sighted. Yeah, you know, people were thinking, you know, thinking that processing was going to be hard. 
yeah, and processing was going to be slow forever. Yeah, you know, what we were doing on 8 and 16 and, and soon 32-bit architectures was always going to be um, word constrained. And, you know, and that hasn't proven to be the case. You know, it's, you know we, write, we write enormously complex, crappy code now, you know, I mean, at, at all sorts of levels. And everything works pretty good. You know, it's like, I mean, sure, we can all go in and do what we did 35 years ago and optimize the hell out of a piece of, you know, piece of code to try to make it more efficient. But nobody bothers to do that anymore because, you know, we don't have the same conservation needs that we had then. And I think the conservation needs that we had then were part of what made people so fanatical about byte alignment and, you know, um, and, you know, and word alignment um, uh, over, you know, thinking about flexibility and extensibility, you know, over time. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, when I wrote that paper about VIP versus IP, that was one of the issues was VIP had a smaller header. I, I can't believe I remember this from like 20 years sure. ago, but that, but that was part of it, right? It was less chatty. Discovery was less chatty because you had a server, blah, blah, blah. So it was a big deal. And I know it was a big deal in OSPF versus IS to IS. And amusingly, OSPF is now going to TLV based. Yeah. I mean, they've, they, they now have a completely second set of, um, LSAs that are TLV based that look very, very similar to IS to IS. In fact, the working groups are now merged because everything, because now that you have TLV based IS or OSPF LSAs, I can just use the same stuff in both protocols. I can use the same TLVs. So, and, and the, and the, the need to need to be concerned about, you know, about current generation processing, you know, establishing the, you know, establishing the criteria for, five generations over the next three years is, is, you know, is, is wrong. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So Donald, any, any questions from you about this? I actually thought it was interesting that the, the, I think you said the ITU only has governments now. So why only governments? Well, it's uh, in the ITU used to be called the consultative committee for international tele tele telegraphy and telemetry. Uh, and, um, or telephony rather, and so it was. It was an organization formed by uh, the uh, the government-operated uh, uh, public telephone and telegraph companies. Yeah, and uh, yeah, almost every other country uh, back then, you know, before the divestiture of AT and T, um, had a monopoly environment for for communications. You, you know, we didn't have competition. You know, in the local loop, we didn't have competition for. You know, for um, for wide area networking competition for mobile, you know, until after 1985, here, uh, so people forget that. You know, we're, we're talking about something that was being actually architected before there were multiple, um, you know, multiple carriers before there were, you know, 800 choices for mobile in the United States, right? Um, all cannibalizing each other's markets. Yeah. And and all those companies were basically owned by the government wholesale. Or in a lot of countries, they were not in the U.S., but still. in some countries, yeah, they still are owned by. And so it started out, I think, as a way for all the countries in Europe to get their network operators to talk to one another, so you could make a phone call, as yeah. simple as that, between like Luxembourg and Amsterdam or something. You know. Well, keep in mind that that um, billing was the most important application oh, on the goodness. telephone network, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, CDT, it's called, called detail records, CDR. Called detail records, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and and just the you know just being able to 
to complete a call from the United States to France or from France back to the United States in 1980 was non-trivial. Yeah, and and how they were you know, how they were uh, assessing the fees for each of the carriers involved in that, you know, is mind-boggling. We don't think about that anymore. You know, you know, we only think about the fact that if we do happen to roam, in, you know, into another country, we get gouged. Back then, you got gouged no matter where you were for whatever kind of call you made, and it was just a fact of life. You know? Yeah, yeah. In fact, that was part of ATM. ATM, part of ATM was if you had fixed yeah. net cells, you could actually bill on yes. cell counts, and yeah. you can't, you can't bill. How do you bill on an IP packet? Like, what do you do with this? It's variable length. You can't do packet counts. And it's almost impossible to measure how much data is being actually transferred. Um, right. At least at that time it was. So there's no billing, no way to bill in right. IP. And that was another reason why people were not interested in connectionless you know, or, or datagram services. You know, it's like, how do you bill that? Right. Right, exactly. You build, you build on the kind of models that we have now. Another good example of people, you know, unwilling to change their, yeah, their model of how communications were going to work. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, so, so IP came out on top, and I think the reasons are, you know, people thought it was better because it was more efficient on the wire, you know, other things like that that came out of it. And then we ran into this V6 problem which then radio ran around trying to get people to run CLNS again, which probably would have been the right thing to do. Um, yeah, I was part of that group. Um, yeah, in fact, I, you know, I wrote a couple of the IETF standards that, that, that were for what was called the TUBA group, the TCP and UDP over big addresses. That's what we used to, we called the... the um, oh, I remember TUBA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I so I wrote, I wrote all the TUBA specs, including the... You know, um, uh, FUBAR, FTP operation over big address records. You know, it was, you know, so that was a, you know, back then, uh, Steph Knowles, uh, you know, insisted that uh, all acronyms be pronounceable. So. <laughs> <laughs> so. And, 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 even, and even if they're not, they, we still try to today. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, even, even if somebody just comes up with random four letters, it's like, then we still try to make it pronounceable. Well, isn't half the fun coming up with your own you yeah, figure out a word, then try to get the acronym in it. <laughs> yeah, I still do that because I was, you know, my, I broke my teeth in, you know, in, in you know, doing those sorts of, uh, you know, those sorts of protocol specs. You know, so yeah. now when I'm doing something, you know, with, with, uh, with who is, I still come up with, uh, you know, with something like thin who is <laughs> over, uh, thin who is in real time, twerk. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So. So well, that's all cool. I can't think of anything else. Do you have any other bits of history, interesting stories, or anything around this that are worth shouting out to the world and having people? Well, you know, there, I, I think while OSI really, you know, really was a, a very, very um, small, you know, small blip on the radar, you know, you know, in the evolution of of internet networking and and you know, and uh, especially the internet. Uh, there's a lot of cross-pollinization as a consequence of people having to try to show that one was better than the other. So as you were saying, you know, you, you, you got the OSPF people now really realizing that variable length, you know, you know fields are, are, are not a you know, bad thing. Um, you, you have protocols in the IETF that use abstract syntax notation. Uh, you could argue that that's good or bad, but you know it's it is what it is. You know most management runs on SNMP, right? So, well, and not only that, but we even come to the point now where we're doing Yang, which is essentially not really a n dot one, but 
it's you know it's a markup language and that's kind of where asn.1 that's what was yeah, kind of one of the first ones right that was one of the first ones that came out i mean and you right. at the start of this whole thing you were talking about how you know what you were talking about was quick it reminded me of quick and i can't remember the exact what you were talking about but it, you know the, you were trying to define clearly define how things work that's what quick does yeah right yeah. so, so a lot of the come, ideas were there it just takes time to come around RFC 1925 rule 11. <laughs> <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah. So, cool. All right. Well, Dave, tell us where people can find you. I know you're on Security Skeptic, and I think you said something about your book being out there. I don't know if you want to say anything about so, that. So, yeah, there's, um, if you go to my website there, uh, uh, secu uh, securityskeptic.com, you can find um, all the chapters of the book, uh, Open System Interconnection, TCP, IP, and OSI. Um, they're in PDF form. Um, uh, they will show you exactly how hard it was to actually produce a book 25 years ago. <laughs> uh, you know all the pictures all the all the language everything everything had to be cut and paste on a printed copy before you sent it to the editor I mean, there was no electronic transmission of a, of, 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 a, of a book it was absolutely a horror story um, yeah so uh, so there, there were lots of ugly warts on even the final copy um, but uh, you know that the routing chapter is still very popular I'm, I'm very uh, I'm surprised lots of universities still use it it talks about the differences and similarities between OSPF and ISIS explains about BGP and its predecessors uh, and uh, if, if you go to my site there's actually a very clear in, uh, link you know on on the site for downloading it if you can't find it just send me an email and complain yeah, so. okay cool excellent all right and so you blog there at security skeptic right yeah, I blog there. I also okay. um, tweet as uh, at Security Skeptic. Yeah. So. Okay, cool. And um, I know Donald doesn't blog, but he's on me not you dot sharp or me not you sharp something. No, me not you sharp, right, Donald, on Twitter? Yep. I, I, it's always hard for me to remember what your Twitter handle is. I'll have, I'll have to go find it. <laughs> um, and then you can always find me at little on that tech or thanks for coming on, Dave. Um, it's great talking to you and we'll try to get you back on to talk about other odds and ends in okay. the future. All right. Thank you very much. Thank yeah, you. Thanks for coming on. Okay.